Welcome to the Words of Colour In Conversation podcast, where we speak to creatives of colour about their work, practice and much more. I'm your host, Heather Marks, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Bristol-based playwright Chinonyaram Adimba. Chinonyaram Adimba is the author of Princess and the Hustler, the second play to come out of Revolution Mix, which is the largest ever national delivery of black British productions, spearheaded by Eclipse Theatre. Her previous work includes Twist, a modern adaptation of Dickens' classic tale, Medea, a modern retelling of Euripides' classic tale, and most recently, How to Walk on the Moon, for which she won the 2018 Sonia Friedman Award. In this podcast, we'll be discussing Chino's journey as a playwright, her new play, Princess and the Hustler, and share advice for aspiring playwrights. So, welcome! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, very pleased that you're here. So, I'd love to find out about your journey as a playwright. You've got lots of writing credits to your name now, and I'd love to know how you came to be a playwright, who your influences are, and what were some key moments for you? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I feel like I've had a, quite an interesting journey into um, both my creativity and the world of theatre. Um, like... Uh, I, I wasn't born in this country and so coming to the UK as a young child um, I certainly like many other immigrant families the focus is on getting a good career that's going to make you money and it's going to give you that stability that the, the immigrant experience actually robs you of so much of the time and so yeah like many young certainly um, Nigerian girls my options in terms of career were either doctor, lawyer, or mm -hmm. I think I actually had the additional option of bank manager. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I had a few a few yeah, things to work one. towards. <laughs> but um, And so I, I suppose in some ways, and very early on, I thought I was going to be a teacher, actually. Mm. And I, I loved the idea of teaching. And that was certainly where I was heading um, as a teenager. And uh, but but I suppose certain life experiences made me stop and think about who I was and what I wanted to be. And a part of that journey was actually um, uh, straight after my A-levels, I decided to take a break before going into university education, which was a big like break from tradition and um, definitely what not what any kind of well-behaved Nigerian girl <laughs> should do. But I took that break and um, part of that process was I tried new things and I one of the first new things I tried was um, I got a traineeship as a stage manager in a theatre in London and I'd never, I think apart from one or two school trips, I'd never been in a theatre before that and... Um, and that experience really opened up my eyes. I was suddenly surrounded by actors and someone that was calling themselves the writer and a director and this whole world that was really a bunch of people getting into a room and kind of making something out of someone else's imagination. And that felt like a very strange thing to be doing, I'll be honest. <laughs> but also, you know, it was it was it was a great insight into that world. Um and I left that experience and really just went into into working. I was a young person who was having to live independently. Mm -hmm. um, and so working was just the only way I could survive. And I didn't think about 
creativity, the arts or any of that, I I didn't have the privilege or I couldn't afford to think about my creativity. All I had the kind of energy for was to survive and that was my life for a very, very long time. And then I had my daughter and for the first time in my life I had a window of time where I wasn't working and... um and so at the same time, I saw an advert for some playwriting workshops that were being run by a playwright called Winsome Pinnock, mm-hmm. who I'd never heard of. Mm. I didn't know Winsome. I didn't know what playwriting was. But as a young mother, I was slightly stir crazy from being left <laughs> in a house with a young child. So I went to do these workshops and those workshops were being held at the Bristol Old Vic. Um, So imagine that was um, 18 years ago Mm. and and I did those workshops and two things happened in that time. Um, Seeing Winsome Pinnock, um, a young black woman who was calling herself a playwright, Mm -hmm. who seemed to be extremely good at what she did, um, suddenly opened up my world to the possibility that this instinct I already had for telling stories might actually might actually become something real (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um and that was the first thing so Winsome's presence in that room absolutely changed my life um and she was able to mentor me through writing my first play and that experience really holds quite a special place Mm -hmm. in my life um and so after that I I went on to write my first ever play for a theatre <laughs> and um, and was very lucky enough for uh, Bristol Vic to put on that play in the studio mm-hmm. as a rehearsed reading. And um, to be honest, I was kind of nonplussed about the whole experience because oh. I just thought it was a fluke. I thought the whole thing was this huge fluke that I had somehow managed to write something good enough for someone to want to put it on and for people to come and see it. And after that experience, I left playwriting and no. I never... <laughs> yes! Oh, no. I know, I know, I know people... I find it, I find it quite... I, find, I still find it quite hard to reconcile with myself who that young woman was that felt she was lacking in so much confidence oh, my and felt so outside of this world. But also... Wow. I have to say it's really important for me to remember that at this point in my life, all I'd ever done was survive. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of having something that I was doing to play or, Mm. you know, just wasn't wasn't in my in my psychology. It wasn't Mm -hmm. it wasn't in my vocabulary. It wasn't real, you know. So um, I I had that experience and really loved it. Mm -hmm. But then left um it was a play called women embrace two and i left that and i went back to working and and that's crazy you had the godmother of black british playwriting as your mentor and even then the imposter syndrome was still there like yeah this was worse than the imposter syndrome this was like this is not even real wow i but i'd learned what playwriting was Mm. and i'd learned that there was this thing that you could do where you told stories and they could be presented to an audience. And also that I'd learnt that as a young black woman, 
it was a possibility. So all of that was still mm. in my in my imagination and in my psyche suddenly. So it wasn't completely lost on me. <laughs> but um but then yeah, I uh left that experience and I went to back to work and but also spent six years away from theatre learning my craft, which you know, when you think something's a fluke, you have to wonder whether it's something you can learn, mm. you know. And so I I spent those that time away from theatre actually learning what playwriting was, what what it meant to tell stories in the Western tradition, which I must always say, um, what these big words were that <laughs> were seemed to kind of be banded around. I went to workshops, you know, mm-hmm. I was really lucky um, the weekends where I didn't have my daughter, I could go to workshops if they were in Bristol yeah. um, with playwrights such as David Eldridge and Roy Williams. And, you know, so I was I was I was still engaging. I just wasn't I didn't have the confidence to send my work out into the world in mm-hmm. any shape or form. And it took, like I said, took six or seven years for me to get to that point. Um, and, and since then, it's been a. It's been a journey of learning, of still feeling that very much that I'm not a part of this world, of still feeling that sometimes um, it's not a world that always welcomes the stories I want to tell. But um, it's it's amazing to actually now to get to a point where not only feel that I'm a part of the kind of British theatre landscape, but that... Um, I certainly feel like when I walk into the Bristol Vic, it's a home. It's a home for me and it's a home for my writing. Like I said, it's really good to keep in mind that the traditions and and the structures and that we work to when we talk about theatre mm. is just Western. Mm. It's a Western idea of storytelling. It's a Western idea of how things should look and feel mm. and how an audience should gaze, engage with a piece of work. All of that yeah. is constructed within the kind of framework of the Western experience. And actually, there are all sorts of other... Uh, worlds of storytelling, mm-hmm. all sorts of other ways of telling stories that once you feel empowered in yourself to go, I, yes, I'm a British person, but I also bring all of this to it. I also bring, I want my plays to get audience reactions. I want it yeah. to feel interactive without having to create an interactive experience. I want it to feel, you know, I want there to be the space where politics and laughter can live because that's that's a very non-Western way of seeing the world. That they can that that the that, that these nuances of storytelling can exist together. And so I think for me as a writer, that's what really did it for me and how I started to feel less wanting to be validated by those buildings and the rules they work by and instead wanting to be validated by my voice, which is so unique and my experience, which is so unique and my, and my, my existence, which is not just British and Western. 
you know, when we talk about kind of the traditional theatre buildings and the traditional theatre audience, it's so established. <laughs> it's so established that it is, it is going to take some undoing, mm -hmm. you know. But if theatres want more diverse audiences, more representative audiences, if theatres want audiences that actually feel for the work, you know, and aren't just there to nod, clap quite, you know, as quietly as possible and have, you know, critical things to say. We go to theatre to feel, you know, and sometimes that fee those feelings are vocal. Sometimes those feelings are displayed, you know, and I think that we've got to allow an aud audiences who don't, and, you know, we've got to make our buildings welcoming to that. And unfortunately, we're not there yet, you know, but part of that is also about the work you programme, mm. you know, work that invites that response, that needs that response, and that thrives from that response. What has the process been for dramatising this play, Princess and the Hustler, at Bristol Old Vic, involving the Bristol community as you do. Um, what has the response been from Bristolians to the play? Yeah. For me, the process has been kind of, one hand, wanting to tell the story of the Bristol bus boycott, but on the other hand, actually being slightly intimidated by it because I'm a history student and I respect history and I respect facts and I respect, you know, telling those things with integrity. And I really was mainly concerned whether I was going to do the story justice, you know, whether I was going to tell it in its best possible way. And so... Um, writing it was kind of slightly daunting, actually. I'm not going to lie. But I knew, you know, the characters came to me really quickly. And and from draft one, I knew at the end of this play that the community were going to be involved. I wrote, I wrote that. I knew I wanted that to happen. I just didn't feel that we could write this play mm. or tell this story without having that community, mm. that sense of, I'm not just speaking to that audience. I want I want this to be owned by as many people as possible. And so um, I wrote it into the script, but kind of thinking, you know, they say write and worry about other, other people have to worry about how it's going to happen. But it was one of those. I wrote it and I thought... Yeah, I'll leave other people to worry about how this is going to happen. So this wonderful description at the end of play, it was like, you know, her world comes alive and all these beautiful, amazing black women come parading out all looking, you know. And so I was like, oh, I'll just leave that to, just leave that to someone else to worry about. And, um, and it was so delightful when, you know, Dawn read the first script and was like, we're going to do this. This is going to happen. This is going to, we're going to make this happen. And I was like, wow, really? That's amazing. And so, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's one of those things in the script that's never changed. And, and, and I'm absolutely delighted that 
she has been able to make that happen. It really feels like a piece of magic at the end of the show and um, and involving the community when it's so emotional. Mm. When you see ordinary black women, brown women from Bristol come onto that stage, it is some, there's something quite quite wonderful about it and it's a lot of emotions there's a lot of feeling some of the campaigners at that time are still are still here with us and mm. are still sharing that knowledge and that mm. experience with us and it's you know when I like I say when I first when I first started to kind of work out whether the Bristol bus boycott was something I could take on as a story um you know, of course, as a writer, it's, you know, you, you learn to float things by people, friends and family. And, you know, oh, I'm thinking of, you know, and I was really shocked how many people didn't know the story mm. in Bristol. And it never, Bristol. yeah, it never occurred to me how how few people knew. That's really surprising. Yes, it it's is. really surprising because I know that there's a plaque in dedication to the Bristol bus boycott in the coach station. Yeah. And, yeah, two of the people I know, who I know are living, are Paul Stevenson, Roy Hackett. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know they were even featured on David Olishoga's Black and British yeah. Forgotten History. Yeah. This is a huge part of history that people should know. I mean, this is a living legacy, living icons. They're not taught it in schools. No. They're not taught, you know, and it, if you are not of black heritage in Bristol there's even less chance of you knowing this history. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was that was my mission. That was really a very clear mission and why I chose to tell the story. Mm -hmm. I I was, like you, genuinely shocked. as like, are people walking around not <laughs> knowing that this actually happened in yeah. Bristol? And so, um, but yeah, it's living, like you say, it's it's living history mm -hmm. and it's it's really certainly for that family and for many families it changed how they felt they could be in the city and you know it changed and it changed national mm. opinion and national legislation it changed the way we live today and yeah i've i've i'm still um i'm still really proud that it's one of the things one of the stories that as well as telling Princess's story, it's it's a story that she shares and her mm. family can share in. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I know, because so little is known about UK civil rights. So little. <laughs> yeah, don't, this is why I get on my bandwagon a little bit <laughs> about black British history. Yeah. You know, because we are, we have been consumers of black American mm. history for so long that we forget that and because we forget actually it does make forgetting us much easier mm. you know mm. we we as as young writers or upcoming writers you aren't taught about the canon of black work that has gone on in british theaters mm -mm. you're not you're, you, you're not made aware of the shoulders you stand on and so each generation comes into theatre and playwriting thinking they're the first time they've this is the first time it's ever been said yeah yeah 
and always it's always made to feel contemporary. Yeah, it's yeah. always made to feel contemporary. It's always made to feel special. Mm. Yet we have such a huge canon of work, you know, and and I'm talking about Winston Pinnock mm-hmm. and but Roy Williams, you know, yeah. there's writers in this country that have been writing for so long and have been paving the way and making and opening doors in British theatre for writers like myself, you know, and it's really important that we stop seeing our work as kind of isolated moments and start seeing it as a clear body and canon of work. Mm-hmm. And that, that, you know, and it's it's part of that loss of memory comes from the bigger question of us not engaging with black British history as a whole, you know, and, and even now when we, you know, we talk about Windrush and we talk about um, that Windrush generation that are having kind of the most absurd and cruel things going on politically, um, we forget that there were black people in this country before Windrush. Mm-hmm. And we've got to stop erasing ourselves from yeah. our own history. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to really push those stories. And, you know, you have to applaud the work of Eclipse in doing that and, and, and make and bringing to light those stories and bringing to light those histories and commissioning writers like myself to tell those stories. It's really, it's, it's important now you know, this stuff is really important now. It's a form of cultural amnesia that we can't continue with. What are you hoping people will take away from Princess and the Hustler? I want them to, if they didn't know about the history before they walk into that theatre, then I want them to take something away. I want them to, for me as a writer, um, theatre isn't always about giving people answers, but it's about sharing your questions with an audience. And so um, I want people to go away from the show and want to do their research and want to go and look up those names mm-hmm. and want to go and find where those quotes came from. And so there's all of that. But more than anything else, I want, I want people to walk away and know that black girls dream too and, and that, that that black girl magic is alive in so many homes around the world and in this country particularly um because it's really important to me we do have we do have a history that's painful sometimes that's traumatic and that's difficult and those need to be discussed but we also have imaginations and dreams and wonder and magic and and young girls that just want to dance all day and dream about being princesses and I want them to walk into shops and see dolls that are like princesses I want them to I want the world around them to actually give them the opportunity to keep those dreams because at the end of the day so much of what we become as adults are based on our childish dreams you know so much of us is based on that stuff and if you kill those dreams, you kill so much. And so I want people to walk away from the theatre and realise that, yeah, all these little brown girls, they have dreams too. And those dreams are 
could sometimes change the world, you know? And yeah, that's it for me. It's like all about, I, you know, I do still believe in magic and it's a really difficult thing when you're my age. <laughs> I can tell you it's really hard. Um, but yeah, I want people to believe in the magic of what, of what we could grow up to be. Everyone to believe in that and to invest in that. Yeah, that's what I want them to take away. So what keeps you true to your practice, the principles that guide you as a playwright, and what advice would you give a younger Chino and to other aspiring playwrights? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I feel... Oh, younger Chino, like, definitely needed to kind of believe in herself a bit more. Definitely didn't do that for a very long time. Older Chino's making up for it big time. Um, but I think advice is, learn, you have to learn, you have to learn your craft. I mean, there's no way around it. Even if you want to write something that completely goes against everything that you know, know what you're fighting against. I think that's the thing that fundamentally changed me as a as a writer and a storyteller um so learn do the work i've no formal training i've never done an ma in any creative writing i've never done any college course i've never done any you know i've done the odd workshop but i did the work i did the work myself and it is important it's a world that spends a lot of time quoting names and people that you don't know and it's okay not to know those names it's okay not to have read those plays but also it's good to know why you haven't you know it's really important to kind of get a sense of yourself I mean most of the time I call myself a playwright um and a writer but also quite a few times I call myself just an artist I'm an artist with a vision of what the world could and should be and um and what and those guiding principles for me hold me steady even when I'm doubting the work that I'm making and so it's good to it's good to see yourself as an artist sometimes because I think writing more than any other art form is can be a very difficult and painful process when you are your work is so quickly judged at sometimes very very early stages of its life and that's really the vulnerability that you have to sit with in order to allow that to happen is something that we're not we don't talk about enough and so i my biggest advice is learn how to sit with your vulnerability because that's really the hardest battle of it all, because you will be faced with vulnerability on an almost daily basis for me. You know, it's like so many people have so much to say about this thing that has come from the deepest part of you, and that's really mm. difficult sometimes. And um, so, yeah, I have through writing, I've learned through being an artist, I've learned how to be vulnerable. And that's that's what it's given me um, in the scariest possible way. <laughs> um, so, I yeah, my advice is always just, like, learn to sit with your vulnerability because you'll need to know that. You really will need to know that to make 
both the best work possible, but also to know when to defend your work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a really, it's something I didn't, um, I didn't know before I started telling stories or writing in theatres, for theatres. Yeah. Throughout this whole discussion, we've touched on so many things. We've touched on history. We've touched on your practice on so many wonderful things to take away of letting young people dream of learning to be vulnerable is there anything in this discussion that we haven't touched on that you would love to share that you would love listeners to know yeah I mean like I just want to come back to the thing of buildings and theatres in the UK generally but for me particularly in Bristol. I'm really passionate about what I do as a trustee for that building. But part of the work and part of what I try and say to people is there is an element of buildings coming towards you and saying, you're welcome, come in. But there's also an element of us taking ourselves and owning spaces. You know, because it's really easy to sit there and say, no one's doing anything to invite me in. But if you if we all start using the Bristol Vic with our laptops, all these black and brown people start turning up in the cafe day in, day out. That's how you that's how you change a culture. That's how that's another way of doing it. And I think we we have to take ownership of spaces. We have to take ownership of buildings sometimes, you know, because no, we're not quite at the point where people understand how they invite us in, Mm. you know, even as a writer. There's some buildings that don't know how to invite me in as a writer. Mm. They see my work. I'm sure maybe they even admire my work. But the how is still elusive. Yeah. But somehow I've got to take up space. And that's really, I feel really passionate about it. I feel really passionate that we give ourselves permission to take up space. You know, there's so many young creatives in this city, so many young writers, so many young designers, so many, like, young and old. There's so many people who are doing so, so much amazing work in the city. And they still say that place is not for me, Mm. you know? And I think that place is for you. It's for you because you can walk in through the doors and sit yourself down on that chair, whether you order coffee or don't order coffee, you can, do you know what I mean? You can take up that space. And after 20 years of being in Bristol, I still feel that that's possible. That's possible for us to take up spaces in those buildings. And I and I just want more people to do it. Mm-hmm.